to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus 28. We'll actually read a bit of chapter 29 before we begin. So uh, that's on a page later there. Uh, Exodus 28 begins on page 68. I believe 69 will begin uh, chapter 29. Okay, page 69 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. Just a couple of things before we read and pray. First, if you're a member of Gray Road, please remember that this evening at 5.30 is our next members meeting. Um, It is important that we be together as family and talk about what it is that the Lord is doing in us, in our congregation, how we are doing in a variety of different ways. And so I know that, uh, you know, we don't often come back on Sunday evenings, but I'm asking you to please make it a priority to be here. These next few months, actually, I think will be quite important in the life of the church, not simply this members meeting, but when we come to our next one in January. And so I hope that you'll be here tonight uh, as we think about uh, where we are as a congregation and what God is doing in the various ministries uh, among us. It's good to celebrate together. It's good to pray together. It's good when there are burdens to be burdened together. It's good when things are not going so well to be not going so well together. Uh, Things are going well, so we should enjoy those things together, and so I I hope you'll be here. The other thing that uh, I want to do before we uh, launch into our reading is to say a public thank you to Janine Burks. Janine has been working in our uh, financial administrative position for 19 years now, and just this past Wednesday, I knew she had retired because the basket of chocolate was no longer on her desk. So I, I knew that was it. There was no coming back from that. Where the chocolate goes, Janine goes. And it, it's not coming back anytime soon. But Janine, I would like you to come here with your fan or whatever else you need and come on up here. Um, I want to take a moment. I want to thank you. We have a gift for her from our congregation. Uh, many of you, I hope, brought cards. If you're sitting there thinking, I forgot to bring a card, Janine will still have a mailbox that you can see. She didn't take that down. Uh, <laughs> but she, <laughs> we thank God for her. And I would just want to pray and give thanks to God for uh, Janine. Here you go. Lord, we do thank you for Janine. We thank you for your grace in her life. We thank you for her love for your word and for your church. We thank you for her faithfulness in these last 19 years. We thank you for this new season of life for her, and we pray that you will open up for her, in her family and in the church, new ministry opportunities that she does not even see now. Use her for your glory. And for the good of others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Janine. It is good and right to to celebrate such things. Just this past Thursday, uh, Rod and Staff Ministries, who now has their office here at Gray Road, celebrated 25 years of, of ministry in our community. It's always good to take those times uh, to remember what God has done and to look forward to what God will do as we seek to be faithful to Him. So, 
Exodus chapter 29. I'm going to read the first nine verses. We're going to be thinking about from chapter 28 all the way through about half of chapter 31, uh, but I just want to read these verses to set uh, the stage. This is a, a description in short of the ceremony of the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests. This is what the Spirit says. Now this is what you shall do to them, the priests and Aaron, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. Then you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it over his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to a text that speaks of things that are unfamiliar to us, we pray that Your Spirit will give us insight, that You will help us to understand what it is that You are saying, what it is that You have done. Help us to see Your truth, to love Your truth, and to see Your Son full of grace and truth. We pray in His name. Amen. Now last week, um, we looked at the tabernacle, a gift from God to His people, assuring them of His presence with them, that in the tabernacle, God dwells with His people, this God who reveals Himself in thunder and in lightning and in trumpet blasts and in fire and in cloud on the mountain has come down the mountain to dwell with His people. And yet He's still God. His nature has not changed. He is still other. He is still separate. He is still superior. He is still transcendent. You see, though He's come to His people and dwells with them, He's still above them. They mustn't think of Him as lower simply because He has come to dwell with them. They should not diminish His greatness and His glory simply because there's something tangible that they can see in front of them. They can't take a casual approach to God. They can't be flippant flippant with the sovereign King of the universe. In fact, here's what's interesting. Though He's right there dwelling among them in the tabernacle, they still can't approach Him directly. 
They need a mediator. They need a go-between. They need a representative. Now, when I was a freshman in high school, uh, there was a young lady named Amy that I wanted to accompany me to the homecoming dance. Uh, But I was a, a timid little squirt. I didn't, I mean, it's hard for you to imagine that, right? Me, little. So, uh, so I was a timid little squirt, and, and so I got one of our mutual friends, Holly. We were all part of the same friend group, and I sent Holly to go and talk with Amy, not to ask her to the dance for me, but to ask what she would say if I did ask. Well, we did not go to the homecoming dance, (laughs) but we did remain friends throughout high school and beyond. Now, I tell that story because in that exchange, Holly was a kind of mediator. She represented me when she went to Amy, and she represented Amy when she came back to me. Now, of course, there is a huge difference between my little story and the whole notion of approaching God. Because, you see, if I hadn't been so timid, I could have just gone to her myself. I mean, she's just another person. But sinful human beings cannot simply approach God. He is holy. He is transcendent. The Bible tells us that He dwells in unapproachable light. You can't just knock on His door and go. We have to have a mediator. And because God is merciful, because God is loving, because God is gracious and kind, He provides a mediator. And as we've come along in the book of Exodus, we've seen one already. Moses acts as a mediator between his people and God. He goes to the people on behalf of God. He speaks to the people on behalf of God. He he is God's vessel of demonstrating His power among His people. And also, likewise, He represents the people as He goes to God, as He goes to intercede for them in particular. But this whole notion of a mediator was not meant to be a one-time thing. The people didn't just need Moses to be a mediator. They would always need a mediator. And so, God, in these chapters, we learn God provides a mediator for His people. He establishes the whole priesthood, and foremost among these priests is the high priest, first of which is Aaron. And so, what we have in chapters 28 to 30 first half of 31, is a kind of summary of all that's surrounding this priesthood. And we're going to focus on two of the main things that are going on, the clothing and the ceremony, okay? The clothing and the ceremony. So first, let's think about the clothing. Chapter 28 deals mostly with the clothing that Aaron, as high priest, will wear. At the end, there is talk about his sons, uh, but the focus is on the high priest. And as with the tabernacle, God gives detailed instructions for the high priest's clothing. 
And he's not just particular about what will be made. He's particular about who's going to make it. Who's going to lead the way here? If you look in chapter 28, verse 3, you'll see uh, he tells Moses, You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And then in chapter 31, at the beginning of chapter 31, two men are singled out, Bezalel and Oholiab. And the Bible tells us in verse 3, I have filled them with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs and work in, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, and to work in every craft. These two men were to lead the way in the construction of the tabernacle. They were to lead the way in the making of these garments. Because in order to serve God like this, you have to be full of the Spirit. We can't just do things for God on our own, in our own strength in our own ability. These men are full of the Spirit and are full of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Full of the Spirit and they're full of wisdom. This is actually how the Bible would describe deacons and the work of deacons. They are to be, as it were, like Bezalel and Oholiab, the lead servants. And they must be filled with the Spirit and wisdom. So you see, that's actually why uh, what Chad read was so important and why you actually consider carefully your nomination for deacons. You don't just look around you and say, well, there's a guy. I think he should get a shot at this whole deacon thing. I don't think he's ever been a deacon. I think we ought to, I think we ought to go that way. Let's see if I can muster up some people to nominate him. We'll get him into office. That's not how it works. The nomination of deacons isn't just about like thinking through, well, who do I think would be good at this? No, it's about thinking through the congregation and thinking, who is it? It seems conspicuously full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, is blameless in His ways. And I'm thankful to say that that's, this is what our deacons are, and this is what our deacons should be every time we come to this moment in our congregational life. Now, what is it that actually makes the clothing special. Well, I just want to mention four things from chapter 28 very quickly. First is the material itself. The material itself. Look at verse 5 of chapter 28. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Now, if that doesn't ring a bell to you, you all you have to do is go back to the beginning of chapter 25, which we won't do, and read the list of what is collected for the tabernacle. And you'll find that there's gold, and you'll find that there is uh, the blue and the scarlet uh, 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 yarn and the fine twined linen. All that's listed here is listed there. In other words, Aaron's clothing points to the work he does, points to the role he has, and ultimately points to the God he represents. God's dwelling place was to be glorious and beautiful, and His clothes are to be as well. Look at verse 2. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. It's not just a matter of the work being done. It matters 
that the glory and beauty of the high priest isn't for himself. It's actually to demonstrate the God that he serves, the God that he represents among them. Secondly, you see the names. Now, there are names on this clothing, not like on the tag in the back like there are in our clothing. These are more purposeful names. And they were in two places. The names of the twelve sons of Israel, the twelve tribes, were part and parcel of this garment. So in two places. One was on the ephod. First they were listed on the ephod, which is a kind of sleeveless apron or vest that would come over the head. And um, on the shoulders would be two onyx stones. And on those stones would be engraved the names of the sons of Israel, six on one and six on the other. They also appear in an item called the breast piece. I mean, sometimes it's called a breastplate, but it wasn't made of metal. It was uh, made of fabric. It was a square right in front that hung, right here in front. And on it were four rows of three stones each, and on each of those stones was engraved one of the names of the tribes of Israel. Why? Because the high priest bears the name, the, so the high priest bears the names on his shoulders and on his chest. He bears the weight of responsibility for them on his shoulders, and he carries them with him in his heart. Everywhere, everything he does is about them. It's about representing God, and it's about representing them. Think about that. The material, he represents God. The names, he represents the people. These very pieces demonstrate that this man is to be mediator between God and His people. The third thing to think about is the stones. Now, these are different stones than the ones with the names on them. These aren't sewn into the design. Uh, But the breast piece actually made a pocket. There was a pocket there, and there were two stones in them called the Urim and the Thummim. Okay, look at chapter 28, verse 30. In the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now, the Urim and the Thummim are a bit of a mystery. And when I say a bit of a mystery, that's actually an understatement. All right? You know, what did they actually look like? How were they actually, you know, what was the method of actually using them? How do you know that what anything is as you're using them? Um, but, but one thing we do know is that these were used as a means of God revealing His will to His people. Now, when I say that, what I don't mean, what, what the Bible never tells us is that, that these were just ordinary people making ordinary decisions, like, you know, uh, where should I go to college? Uh, Who should I marry? Um, Should I take this job or not? Should I buy this car or not? Just give me some dice and I'll throw them, and that's how I'll make all my decisions. That's not how... The Urim and Thummim were, were, were reserved for larger scale decisions, often national decisions, like should we go to war or not? But in this, we're reminded, and it it is pictured, that God actually hears His people and answers them and guides them 
because of and through the work of the mediator. The fourth thing is the label. There's a label. On the head of the high priest is a turban with a gold plate. Look at chapter 28, verse 36 and 37. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. Now, the fact that the high priest wears a plate that says holy to the Lord did not mean that he himself is holy. Any more than that little boy or little girl with a police officer uniform at your door tomorrow morning wanting you to give them candy... Just wearing that uniform doesn't make them a police officer any more than wearing a sports jersey makes you an athlete. Just the fact that that holy holy to the Lord is on his forehead doesn't mean that he himself in his character is holy. Now, in part, he is set apart for a particular function. He is holy to the Lord in that sense. But there's actually something more and greater to it. Look in the next verse, verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear my guilt, bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. The reason why holy to the Lord is on his head is as a continual reminder for all the people that only that there that there must be a holy one to bear their guilt the only way sacrifices are acceptable to the lord is if the holy one offers them isn't that wonderful it will be in just a minute if you're not drawing a line between all the dots This is glorious. The Holy One goes before God and makes atonement and offers sacrifice, sacrifice, the only sacrifice that's acceptable. So think about all these pieces. The mediator that God provides for His people in in the ephod, he, He represents God. To the people. In the names, he represents the people before God. In the stones, it is through him that prayer is offered up and answers are given because of the mediator. And it is through him that, is a, that atonement is made for sin. You see, friends, when we look at the high priest's clothing, what we're seeing is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our high priest. He doesn't just simply represent God and reflect Him in clothing that He has on. He actually is God in the flesh. He is Uh, In the Old Testament high priest, all these things are symbolic, but in Jesus, it's all fulfilled. 
1 Timothy 2, Paul says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Holy One. It's not just a plate on His head. It is true through and through. He is the Holy One who brings sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats, but His own blood to atone for sin. He bears our guilt. He is the sacrifice. He reconciles God and man through atonement. Hebrews 9 says, The high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. But Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. You see, don't just look at the priest's clothing. Don't just, don't just get caught up. Don't, don't act like the Bible ends at Malachi. All right? Don't just get caught up in just talking about uh, just how wonderful these garments were and all these things. The Bible in its whole means for us to look through the high priest in his glorious garments to Jesus Christ, our high priest, in all his glory. The clothes of the high priest point to the Savior of the world. That's what we ought to see here. It's not just an interesting study. It's a source of hope. And then we move on to the ceremony. The ceremony. Chapter 29 tells us of the ceremony where Moses' brother becomes Israel's high priest. Now, it begins with all of the priests being cleansed. They're all washed And then Aaron is clothed in all these glorious clothes. Listen to this. Uh, Beginning chapter 29, verse 5. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. It's very deliberate. Piece by piece gets put on. And then oil is poured over his head, poured on his head, setting him apart for God's work. That's what anointing did. It set someone apart for work like that. It it actually instills authority in that person. And it's not even when you go to chapter 30, which we won't go to read, but if you read verses 22 to 33 there, uh, it's not just to be any old oil, just any oil you can find. There's a special recipe for it. And actually, the people are told, you're not to use this oil for anything else. You're not to use it in your homes. You're not to use it to even anoint anyone else. Chapter 30, verse 32 and 33 says, um, It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, And you shall make no other like it in its incomposition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds anything like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. (laughs) Those are serious words for how you use oil. 
Everything here is designed to serve God's purpose. So he is anointed. And then there are three sacrifices made. The first is a sin offering. In uh, chapter 29, verses 10 to 12, You shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. The priests lay their hands on the head of the bull. It is a symbol of their sin being laid on this animal, and then it dies. And as that animal dies, these men watch and they know this is what I deserve. You see, yes, the priests are set apart for a special role in God's people. But they are sinners just like God's people. They need atonement just like God's people. And as they serve, they will have to continually make offerings for themselves first before they can ever think about making offerings for others. The second is the burnt offering. Look at verse 15, beginning in verse 15. You shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. Now, this is slightly different because the whole ram is burnt. It is consumed in the flame of the altar. It is a picture of the total dedication of the priest to their task. They must not be disturbed in their work. They must not be deterred from their work. They must not be distracted by other things. They must be dedicated to this work. In fact, one of the words that's used for this whole thing is consecration. Uh, That word is used down in verse 33. But the idea of consecration, the Hebrew word that that, that is translated that way, literally means to fill the hands. Okay? Now, when all of our before our boys moved out and we had all of our children at home, when we would tell people, uh, they would ask about the family, and, uh, you know, they're going along, yes, I've been married to Susan, you know, if I'm sitting at a, a table with a bunch of guys, yeah, I've been married to Susan for X number of years. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. And we have six children. And the eyes just, you know, fly wide open. And one of the things that is sometimes said in response to such a statement is, boy, you've got your hands full. You've got your hands full. The idea is, you don't have time for much of anything else except that family of yours. And actually, that's the idea of the consecration. You see, these men being installed into this office is their hands being filled. This is what's to take up their time. This is what's meant to take up their lives. 
They're not to fill their hands, as it were, with other things. They're to be set apart wholly for this purpose. And actually, it's not just the priests who belong to God in this way. Because in chapter 30, in the middle of the chapter, there's this paragraph uh, that may seem odd or out of place. It's about a census being taken and uh, contributions being made. Now, a census is an act of authority. It's the one in authority counting heads to demonstrate this is, what my, this is who is in my kingdom. These are the ones who belong to me. And as the people are counted, the Bible tells us that they would give a half shekel. Now, this is not a large amount of money, but they would give a half shekel no matter who they are. No matter how big their salary is or no matter how small their salary is, they would give a half shekel for the work of the tabernacle. Why? Every, because every person who belongs to God belongs to Him equally. There is no greater belonging if you're rich. There is no lesser belonging if you are poor. There is no greater belonging if you are one gender. There is no lesser belonging if you are another gender. And after the coming of the Lord Jesus, there is no greater if you are a Jew and lesser if you are a Gentile. The, foot, the, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all stand amazed in the presence of the same Jesus of Nazarene who has loved us and given himself for us. You see, because it, the priests belong to him, the people belong to him. If you're a Christian, you belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6 says you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And so, just as with the priest, God actually expects full devotion from us. God expects that our hands are going to be full with His stuff. That whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we'll do it all to the glory of God. That whether we're folding clothes to serve our families, whether we're going off to a job to provide food for our families, whether we're interacting with our neighbors, whether we're at the church, no matter where we are, our hands are full with one thing, and that is pleasing and serving the Lord. That is what our lives are to be consumed by. It's pleasing Him. I wonder. I wonder, are you devoted like this? Are you consumed with pleasing Him? Are your hands full of things that you're doing to glorify Him. The third offering is the wave offering. Verse 19 and 20. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Now again, in truth, full devotion is in view here. The blood of this offering touches the ear, touches the thumb, touches the large toe. 
because these priests are meant to listen to God. They are meant to serve God. They are meant to walk with God in all of life. Everything is meant for God. And there are two parts of this offering after the actual sacrifice is made. Part of it is waved before the Lord and then laid on top of the burnt offering. It's given to God in that sense. The other part is waved before the Lord and the priests actually eat it. Just like on the mountain where they had a meal with the Lord. Here they hear these priests are eating. And actually the intention is, God is saying to them, and in verse 28 He makes it more clear, that in perpetuity as the people bring offerings, this is how God will sustain them. God will sustain these priests through the offerings of His people. But this wave offering again is about devotion to God and the provision of God to these men. It's quite a ceremony. And it actually happens seven days in a row. A full week. Fully setting apart these fully consecrated men for full lives of service to God. Just as with the tabernacle, this is actually a gift to God's people. The priests are a gift. They don't They don't run for election as priests, you understand. They can't angle for the office. God places them there. And this whole ceremony should result in a priesthood that blesses God's people as they live consecrated lives, as they give themselves fully to the Lord and to His work. But do you know what happens? They fail. And they fail repeatedly. Time does not permit us to read all of the stories and all of the prophetic words against the priests. But they do not live consecrated lives. They live lives for themselves. Sin pervades the Old Testament priesthood because it is filled with sinners. And none of them are fully devoted. None of them are actually consecrated. None of their hands are actually full with the work that God has given them to do. But one will. One will come and have his hands absolutely chocked full with only doing what God wants him to do. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is consecrated, he is anointed at his baptism as He identifies with sinners in His baptism, and as He identifies with God in the descending of the Holy Spirit as a dove and with the words proclaimed from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. And He sent Him off. And Jesus was totally devoted. Jesus' hands were full beginning to end of His ministry, serving the Lord. He lives up to every expectation. His ear, His thumb, His toe, all of it. He listens to the Lord. He does the works of the Lord. He walks in faithfulness with the Lord. And and, and Hebrews 7 at the end says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus Christ is our high priest. Friend, look, your, your Catholic friends are right in this. We do need a priest. Don't go around saying we don't need a priest. Because we do. Every moment of every day. Where our Catholic friends go wrong is in thinking we need a priest in addition to the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not. When you pray, we do not pray Directly, we pray through in mediation. In Jesus' name, we pray. We don't just pray. The only way our prayers are heard is because Jesus is our faithful high priest. He is the one who has worn the robes of righteousness, who has been the embodiment of holiness, who has given himself for us. We need no other priest, but we do need a priest. We need him. Every hour we need him. Every quick utterance of prayer must be in his name. Not because we utter specific words or a formula, but because we recognize that without His name, our words bounce off the ceiling and just come right back to us. Without Jesus, we have no access. Without Jesus, we are cut off. But there He is, at the right hand of the majesty of the throne on high. Not only mediating our prayers, but offering prayers for us. He intercedes for us. He guides us and leads us by His Holy Spirit to know and understand and do His will according to His Word. Oh, friends, we need a priest. We need a mediator. And Jesus is that mediator. He's the only one qualified to represent God and man because the only one who is both God and man. And he pleads our case. You know, my friend Holly that I told you about, when she went to Amy, she didn't actually just ask the question. She pled my case, which I was thankful to hear. I didn't ask her to do that. She talked me up. How funny he is, how much of a gentleman he'll be, these kinds of things. Jesus isn't that kind of mediator. He doesn't go and plead our case based on our merit. He pleads our case based on His merit. 
His life of righteousness, His death for sin, His victory over sin in resurrection credited to us through faith. Friend, here's the reality. In the end, we will all stand before God. But we will not all approach God and be accepted by God. Only those who have Jesus Christ as their mediator, as their high priest, as their Savior, will be accepted on that day. Friend, you will stand before God. But will you be accepted by Him? The answer lies solely in who the Lord Jesus Christ is in your life. Is He your mediator? Is He your priest? If not... I plead with you, come to Him. Come to Him. Turn from sin and trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that You have provided a mediator for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest who has represented you to us and us to you, that he has made the sacrifice once for all for our sin, that we might be accepted by you. Lord, I pray that as we look at the Old Testament priesthood, and as we look, even as we read our Bible plans and we see priests of one kind or another, that those who do well, we would see them as but a pointer to the one who is perfect. And those who fall and fail and sin, that we would see them as a reminder that there's only one who's perfect. Thank you for our perfect high priest. Thank you that we have access to you through him. We thank you for hearing us loving us, saving us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we ask and pray these things in His name. Amen. Would you stand? And we're going to sing um, before we go.